Veni, Veni, Venias, and welcome to our podcast. Good evening, and welcome to Ask a Medievalist. I'm M, the Ask portion of our program, and joining me tonight, as always, is Dr. Jesse Noose. Hello! So, um, living with animals. We're going to talk about it. Yes! Uh, it's very common nowadays. I know, Jesse, you have a dog. We do have a dog. I have uh, two dogs, a cat. I have a three-year-old, which is pretty much the same thing. Yes. Um, Children are, have also always been common. Long time. <laughs> yes. People have lived with them as well. Yes. <laughs> yes. Fewer studies on their domestication for some reason. <laughs> yes. Um, yes. Well, depending. Yeah. 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 Future episode. But, Yeah. So, uh, one of the first big parts of, um, if you're getting a civilization off the ground, you might want to domesticate some animals, right? Yes. And, you know, people also start keeping animals as pets pretty early on. Yes. Right. This is a good point because... So, I think we should, yeah, we're going to start by talking about the difference between just domesticated animals and pets, right? Yes. So... (laughs) Uh, yeah, domestication, of course, cows, sheep, horses, um, they're not necessarily pets. They can be goats, donkeys. Um, they certainly can be pets, but they are not. Do you like llamas and alpacas count as domesticated? Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, any animal that, I mean, wild means essentially it can totally forage for itself and ignore people. Mm-hmm. Um, and most Animals from which we get fur or, you know, (laughs) wool, whatever, fibers or milk or animals that are known for carrying our stuff. Uh, Most of these animals are domesticated. Yeah. Um, I was going to say, if if not being able to forage on their own is a criteria, then uh, my cat is definitely domesticated. Yes. I don't think he would do very well. (laughs) Yes. Some cats outside. do and some don't, of course, um, famously. I mean, cats yeah. kill, like, m- you know, billions of birds every year. So mm-hmm. they are a huge problem. But also, yes, some, of course, do not do that anymore. <laughs> so he thinks yeah. he thinks he's a mighty hunter, but yes. I think this is optimism on his part. Yes, it definitely depends. Sorry, dude. Um, but that is a sort of, right. And the, of course, now there's another category where we would say feral, right? So mm-hmm. today, a domestic cat who lives in the wild, which is to say a domestic cat who forages for itself, yeah, would now be considered feral. Um, because it individually is wild, but its species still isn't, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it would do better if it weren't. It's not really meant to be out there. This is why people rescue animals that they find who are feral, right? Yeah. Um, And of course, it is a funny reminder, you know, like a llama, you know, they, yes, they also don't really forage for themselves anymore. Camels, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, There there are animals, of course, who do and can. Um, So, of course, there are pigs who are domesticated and grown and really amazing animals, um, mm-hmm. and, you know, they do end up as things like pork chops sometimes. But then there are also, of course, wild boars. We, we call them something slightly different. I mean, you could call them a wild pig, but no. we tend to call them yeah. boars, right? Um, and they definitely are super dangerous, and you stay away. But of course, you know, yeah, you can still eat them, but... Right. There is, but there's a clear difference. What yeah. confuses me a little bit is there's another category of... Like, they do have, like, farm-raised boar. Yes. They, you find that's, you, I think that's usually if you go to a restaurant and they have something on the menu that says wild boar. Yes. That's what you're getting. Yeah, because usually the point is, of course, to control what they're eating (laughs) so that you know that what you're eating is not going to poison you, basically, right? Yeah. Or isn't going to be filled with mercury or whatever, like tuna fish or something. Um... Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so that's that's where that comes in, and of course, in that case, yes, they are kept somewhere, but they're still wild. They could live on their own because, as a species, they still can. Right? The domestic pig can't really live on its own anymore. They're cute and pink, and they get to be huge. Those things are not are not going to survive in the wild. 
right? Right. A boar, they also get to be that huge, but they hunt and stuff. I mean, they absolutely do. And so, um, you know, obviously they could eventually be domesticated and their species could be altered. Uh, but there is a clear attempt not to do that, right? There is an attempt to keep them as wild while still kind of cultivating them, right? Mm -hmm. It's a very fine balance that people have started to realize is important because, of course, of, you know, trying not to destroy the environment, basically. Um, yeah. That there are animals you want to domesticate, but then there are animals you, you want to leave them alone but also, if you want to eat them, you want to make sure that you maintain them as a species, so you don't hunt all the boars till they're gone, which means potentially cultivating them, like a salmon farm, right? Mm -hmm. um, but also means doing it in such a way that you are not interfering with their wildness. So, like, you're not – you know what they eat because you control what's in their fenced-in environment, but you aren't necessarily, like, feeding them in a trough every day the way you would – Right. You know, so they do potentially still have to forage and such. It's just that you are, you control everything within their pen, which is probably mm -hmm. huge, so they can feel like they're kind of wild, even though they're not. <laughs> you know, it's the yeah. same as like uh, free range chickens. Obviously, there are boundaries to their free range, <laughs> but they yeah. get to want, you know, but they can do whatever they want and wander around, and then the people have to go find the eggs. Right. Um, so that trying to maintain that sort of um, domestication versus wild. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it's a very different sort of um, thing, because obviously when people were starting this, you know, more than 20,000 years ago, um, I, you know, we talked about this a little bit, I think when we talked about alcohol and such, right? The beginnings of agriculture. Yeah, food. Um, yeah. yeah, the beginnings of domestication, of course, things were wild. <laughs> and you yeah. had to, you know... Um, and then, obviously, you um, breed them so that the docile animals, first of all, breed more easily, presumably, but also those are the ones you breed. Mm -hmm. And then you get more docile animals and, you know. Yeah. Um, I mean, the really angry ones, you probably, they won't let you get too close anyway. Right. So There are exceptions, of course. I mean, bulls are still dangerous, obviously, mm -hmm. but you get bullfights. Um but you also get bullfights, of course, because there's a way in which people admire an animal that sort of can't be domesticated. Cows yeah. can be domesticated, bulls cannot. This is also, of course, a very gendered commentary, mm -hmm. which is why some people like it. I figured they had bullfights just because they have a guy who comes in sword. Well, it's a test like of it. masculinity, right? Yeah. Um, you prove your masculinity against this wild animal. Um, yeah. You know, that's what hunting is about as well, frequently, right? Um, so there is, there is frequently a very gendered commentary, which is also interesting because, um, pets themselves, so domestication versus, you know, a pet, that's one thing. But of course, pets, as I said, anything sort of can be a pet. A domestic pig can obviously be a pet. Um, mm -hmm. what people keep, whatever, pot-bellied pigs? Yeah. Right? Those are very hip. Usually, of course, for a while. what makes something a pet is A, you name it. <laughs> <laughs> right mm -hmm. b you don't eat it um and c you don't necessarily expect it to do anything for you mm -hmm. right so that also sets um in a lot of ways either sets apart or makes very ambiguous the place of certain animals like horses mm -hmm. right um horses obviously are incredibly important always but certainly in the middle ages we are not going to talk about them in this episode. We will do further episodes on animals. But in this episode, we are not going to talk about them. Okay. Because, arguably, horses are not sort of, in quotes, just pets. Which is to say, medieval horses, mm -hmm. there are things expected of them. Right? They help you farm. They take you to war. So they are kind of in their own category. It's not that people didn't have them sort of, quote, unquote, just for leisure. But... You know, in a time when you don't have cars, no horse is really, quote unquote, just for leisure. I mean, it right. takes you places and it, it has to take you places. Like, be, you, you don't have another option, right? The horse carries you or draws your carriage or, but, um. Or you have a very long walk ahead of you. Exactly. Right. So today, when we have cars and tractors, um, it is possible for a horse potentially to just be a pet. Um, but, 
yeah, that arguably that doesn't quite happen in the Middle Ages. Um, then, of course, dogs can absolutely be pets, but there are also lots and lots of working dogs. So we're not going to mm-hmm. talk necessarily about hunting dogs um, or any of the myriad things that you could have dogs do, right? Dogs were definitely the working. turn spit dogs that we talked about yes. very briefly last time. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, so all of these animals that do things, <laughs> they're mm-hmm. working animals, um, and therefore arguably not exactly pets, right? So we are looking at a pet as an animal that doesn't, that is taken care of, and nothing is necessarily expected in return. Yeah. I feel like that raises questions about cats, too, because I feel like lots of people for a long time kept cats to prevent, um, you know, rodent incursion or other things. I think I've been told it says in the in the Talmud that you shouldn't go barefoot in your house at night unless you have cats. Oh, that's awesome. And probably true. <laughs> uh, because they will keep away snakes. Ooh, yes. Actually. Sure. I don't know if our cat would, but in theory, cats would. <laughs> in theory, cats would. He's, I know he's he's caught mouse, mice once in yes. a while, but we haven't had a snake problem for him to encounter. So. Yeah. Well, this is sort of interesting because um, arguably cats for cats, the rodent issue is kind of a loophole and is kind of seen as a loophole <laughs> They because they are working animals in that sense, mm-hmm. um, but... Also, it's just what they do, right? Right. So you haven't trained them to do it. <laughs> no. It's what they do, right? So it, it's a little bit different in some ways, and um, it, it definitely is a loophole, right? So, for example, yeah. um, the church would occasionally say things about how people shouldn't really keep pets because you're giving money to, I mean, giving money, giving food to animals that should go to the poor, mm-hmm. for example, right? Um and yeah, cats, cats are a great loophole, right? We know that anchoresses could have cats. Mm-hmm. The idea that um, they are useful and they do this thing for you. And so, but then of course you do take care of them for it, right? Um, arguably yeah. there is a little bit of a distinction between people who had cats and just let them fend for themselves and hopefully there are enough mice for you to eat and if they're not, whatever. But usually that's not necessarily the case, right? Usually there really is mm-hmm. a sense of... Um, yeah, you know, you take care of your cat, right? Yeah. And you take care of your cat, and then they will mouse for you. So there's not, you know, maybe there's a sort of, um, you want to be sure that you're not feeding them so much they're not going to go catch mice, right? Um, Unless you have a special cat who, like, is your pet, and then you have separate mousers. Um, Mm -hmm. But you still are taking care of your cat, and then it is doing this thing for you because that's what it does. Right. So there, there really is, it is, there is a little bit of a loophole, um, but there is still a sense of cats as pets. Um, it is worth pointing out that, um, so we did look this up, of course, uh, dogs were domesticated first when it comes to cats and dogs. Um, and yeah, gray wolves and dogs diverge from an extinct wolf species um, anywhere between 15,000 and 40,000 years ago. So they are related. They come, you know, they diverge from an extinct wolf species. So there you go. Um, this is true all dogs. And this is, of course, the amazing thing about dogs. That is not true about any other domesticated animal, even cats. The, the variety of dog. Mm-hmm. Right? From, like, greyhounds to chihuahuas to Great Danes. <laughs> yeah. Um, dogs, all dogs are descended from wolves. The interesting thing, they may have been domesticated several times over the course of human history, um, which is to say, at this point, it's probably at least 14,000 years ago, probably more in Asia and Europe, um, maybe more recently in other places, just we don't necessarily have the evidence of them living with people that far back, because, um, mm-hmm. you know, this is all fossil evidence, obviously, sometimes burial, you know. Um, you'll find graves with dogs and people, um, but, or even separate graves, right, for dogs. Um, but the idea that it happened several times, and yet it was always the same species, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. So all dogs are related, which is hilarious and awesome. Um, and 
that, you know, thousands of years, this is tens of thousands of years of domestication. So they are incredibly important to cultures around the world, right? So maybe we'll link probably to lots of like little figurines. Um, they're really famous dog figurines that are super old. Um, and then, of course, there are slightly newer ones from cultures we recognize. <laughs> um, Meso- Mesoamerican cultures have great dog figurines. China, obviously, throughout like Europe and um, ancient Greece. Rome, uh, they're the famous mosaics. Um, Beware the dog. Kawaikanum, right? Ooh. Yes. Um, which is hilarious and just... You know, I mean, <laughs> Pompeii, they're these famous mosaics, and they say, beware the dog in Latin, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's been a thing for, <laughs> you know, nice. thousands of years. Yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, so dogs have been around, right, for so long, and they're just, and they usually get those figurines in poses that we still recognize, right? So like the play pose yeah. that, you know, we sort of call like the downward dog, right? Um, yeah. Play bowing. Yeah. I was told yeah. it's called. Mm-hmm. So which is what's really interesting is that most of the breeds that we're familiar with, like golden retrievers or, I don't know, poodles, mm-hmm. um, originated very recently, like yes. in the 19th century. Mm-hmm. But the dog is still like you can go back you always 10, recognize 20,000 years and yeah it's the same it's obviously the same animal mm-hmm. it just looks a little bit different than the one that you know yep. sleeps in the corner of your office or whatever yes yes and of course there are some dogs um right the shiba i think is pretty old mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. yes i was just reading about that because um they do have a lot of wolf DNA, but also they had, after World War II in Japan, there was an outbreak of, um, I want to say distemper, oh, no. that pushed them kind of close to extinction. <gasps> so like the modern Shiba is actually sort of a crossbreed of three other breeds of Shiba that were around in the, at the time, Wow! like from different areas of Japan. Cool to like strengthen their gene pool. Um, yes. There's also some really interesting stuff these days of trying, like, because modern breeding did some really terrible things, right, to dogs' health. Mm-hmm. Um, German Shepherds, you know, their hips and stuff like this. So trying yeah. to breed dog, and sometimes depending even on like paintings or other images from uh, hundreds of years ago, trying to breed dogs back to what they used to look like. Um, and one of the big ones has been, I think, like boxers and bulldogs. Because mm-hmm. um, their basically their whole physique. I mean, it got to the point like bulldogs can't breathe. Basically, yeah, um, they're th- too brachiocephalic. Yeah, and there's some others too that have had this problem, and they like overheat, and you have to like you know in competitions like the ones that are supposedly the best in the world like have to be kept on ice packs because they can't <laughs> cool themselves because they can't pant. Oh no! Yeah, so there's been this push to change the criteria for the breed and start to breed them back. Um, and so like, you know, paintings of George Washington with his dogs or something, bringing them back to that look. Mm. Right. Interesting. Um, yeah. And they've been doing it and, you know, they've been doing it for long enough now that there are some dogs and you, um, you know, you can run into them and you can recognize, like you still recognize the breed, but it's also very clearly, you Mm -hmm. know, been altered. Um, I'm pretty sure with, with one of them, maybe with boxers, they, they bred them a little bit with something else to try and sort of get that look back, and then they've sort of been breeding them. Um, but yeah, so trying to fix some of these problems, you know, or like eye problems. Yeah. I think, is this still bulldog? Some, one of them. Some types of... Their s- eyes would like... Cocker spaniels have weird eyes. Yeah. Well, this is actually like their eyes could sort of... This is sort of terrible, so if people don't want to listen for the next minute. Um, but their eyes could actually like pop out, so they could oh. lose an eye. Yikes. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, trying to breed them back to look the way they sort of used to look is the point. Um, and, yeah. I mean, it's a really sort of important thing um, that ancient breeds, you know, we know what a lot of them look like because we do have images, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, recognizing, not that all of them were that much healthier, but some of them clearly were, right? So, recognizing that and trying yeah. to go back to that. Um 
but you know, the Egyptians, of course, it's the Egyptians are sort of most famous for Bast, right? The cat goddess, but obviously yes. also Anubis, who is dog headed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, they had, they had, um, what is that? It's a breed of um, the Senjis, mm-hmm. right? Oh, yeah, they definitely had dogs who look like Anubis. I mean, that's, you know, <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit of a greyhound look, I think we would say mm-hmm. today, right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, so you know, dogs have been around for a long time. Um, I do want to give a shout out. Um, there's a professor at Oxford, um, Dr. Moody Al-Rashid, who has a phenomenal Twitter post page, Twitter page, <laughs> Twitter oh, presence. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Um, I mean, she's an Assyriologist, so, you know, Assyrians, sort of the ancient Mesopotamian region, of course, we have talked about Akkadian and other related things occasionally, like with Ishtar. Um, and she posts a wide range of things, but also about dogs. <laughs> and she has some wonderful things um, about dogs from the time. Um, and, you know, there's just there's some great threads of, like, um, figurines with dogs um, who mm-hmm. look very recognizable, you know. Um, and so there's one, for example, that was found, um, there's a there's a plaque of a dog with a collar. Um, this is another thing, right? Collars, of course, hint at domesticity and at pets, right? Um, yeah. Because the, it's a sign of... Marks the dog as somehow being yours. Yes, exactly. Right? Like, you wouldn't put a collar on a wild animal. Right. <laughs> not expect to see him again. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yes. So that's... So the collar, right. Um, and it also tells you, like, how long... You know, of course, like oxen get a yoke to plow um but mm-hmm. dogs that like you know obviously you take them off to hunt and then you put them back in the collar when they're come back um dogs mm-hmm. that don't hunt that are just pets then they just get their collar you know it's but it's a really interesting thing how long that's been around um so yeah so a, a plaque with a dog with a collar um or some figurines of dogs um that were found buried under the floor of a building um, and it was possible that the figurines were meant to protect the building's occupants against evil. Interesting. Um, yeah, this is one of my favorite things. They're, um, Greece did this as well. They're, they are uh, dogs on funerary monuments, right? That were meant to presumably guard the person inside. Um, which is sort of great. There, there are a lot of animals. I mean, there are a lot of creatures that the Greeks put on funerary monuments. Um, you also got like sirens, uh, who are seen as sort of mourning okay. creatures, you know, we the modern view of sirens, I think, is kind of like harpies, which is, say, like, really dangerous women with sharp claws who are blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, and then, of course, we all know yeah. that they almost killed Odysseus. Homer. Yeah. yeah. Um, but the idea, like, they show up on is funerary monuments. There's sort of these birds with female heads, and um, they're usually playing a lute. Um, oh, okay. Uh, which you recognize, because it's a tortoise shell right um sometimes parts the other parts of loot are gone but you see that part right um yeah and so they're seen as like mourning figures in this very and protective um which was kind of true frequently creatures that could be dangerous could also be seen as protective right and dogs of course fit that perfectly right they'll protect mm-hmm. their person um they can be dangerous but not you know they're loyal um but yeah so the so dog figurines buried to um yeah and then there are some there are even some dog figurines they found, um, she says, in a uh, niche on the side of a door leading from the North Palace at Nineveh. Um, oh, wow. Yes. Okay. And ritual texts describe depositing painted dog figurines in this way. And these are really detailed, gorgeous, gorgeous puppies with the fur, all fluffy puppy. Yes. Um, we'll obviously link to this in the cool. notes. Yeah. <laughs> um, but these figurines um, are inscribed with their names, which include things like Catcher of the Enemy and Expeller of Evil. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. And it's worth pointing out, Those of course. Good names. <laughs> yes. Right. But of course, we, you know, a name like Rex um, means king. Right. So um, it's not we're not sort of that far off necessarily naming our dogs these things, although, of course, we name them. Lots of other things as well, right? Yeah. Um, I don't know. Ours are named after very important authors, so, you know. Yes. Yes, and mine is Wrigley, named after, of course, the 
<laughs> the ballpark where the Cubs play. Yes. Yes. Um, but yeah, so there, so there's a sort of wonderful sense. Um, and there's also, um, in this thread, she sort of talks about the fact that dogs were used as a metaphor for loyalty, right? So they still are. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so there's that story mm-hmm. about the guy, a guy in Japan who would walk to the yes. train station with his dog I every know. day and then he died and the dog just waited at the train station. I know it's set set, but interesting. We yeah. should mention this because there is a medieval story of exactly the same thing. <laughs> oh, yes. Um, so, oh, I in fact see an, Domestic, self-domesticating furry cat-like creature behind you. <laughs> yeah. He nipped my arm a minute <gasps> ago, just to remind me who's boss. Yes! That's how it is. See, this is how cats and dogs are different. <laughs> um, yes. But we, we shall return to his species, Anan. Um, but yes, yeah, so first off, yeah, the loyalty of dogs. So, um, we might as well take this now as our theme, loyalty for dogs. This is a huge thing, right? So that was ancient, like, you know, Assyrian, um, and <laughs> moving forward a few thousand years <laughs> to the Middle Ages. Well, a couple thousand years to the Middle Ages. Um, or a few. I mean, it depends when all those things exactly. But yeah. Um, so we have, um, for example, um, the Book of Tobit, which is apocryphal for some, but not for others. It's in the Bible, possibly, depending on what religion you practice exactly. <laughs> this is something that really surprised me, too, is that there are Bible books that people are like, hmm, I don't know about that one. Yeah. Well, like anything, got to figure out what your canon is. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so the Book of Tobit, Tobias is accompanied by his faithful pet dog um, in his search to find a cure to cure his dad's blindness. Um, and the dog doesn't actually cure any of the anything. I mean, the, but the dog is a very important faithful pet, um, and is in most medieval iconography of this story. Right, the Middle Ages loves the story, and the dog is always there. The dog's a huge part okay. of this. Yeah. Um. So, the right that sense of the the loyalty, your com- right, your loyal companion, someone who will accompany you mm-hmm. on this journey, do these things. Um. So there's a, a French um, book from around 1393 that's about sort of proper behavior for women, like in marriage, running a household, um, and it's written in the fictional voice of an elderly man instructing his young wife. Um, and it's known in English, it's translated as the Goodman of Paris, usually, or something like that. Um, but Le Ménagier de Paris. Um, and so, anyway, okay. it's and it's got all this stuff on, like, you know, how wives should behave. And so there's a section on, basically, like, loyalty or how to properly love your husband. And, you know, hmm. and basically dogs are the example. Right. Um, and so he says, you know, that you'll see how dogs uh, will always stay close to their master. And, you know, even when they're not... You know, even if they're sort of far away, they're still going to be always watching their master, right? Um, And wagging their tails and, you know, they'll go wherever, you know, (laughs) um, they'll lie down before their master um, and go through like rivers and woods and through follow through battles and thieves and all sorts of stuff, right? Um, And then there's an example um, of a dog. Um who saw his master killed in a wood um, and then didn't leave him, laid down with him, um, and every day would go find food and come back um, and just wait. Um, And then eventually, you know, people found them and everything. Presumably, this isn't the story, Mm but... um, And the dog, several times afterwards, fought and attacked the man who'd slain his master. And whenever he found him, assailed him, and attacked him. Um, and in the wow. end, he overbore the man in the fields um, on the island of Notre Dame at Paris. Notre Dame, of oh. course. Notre Dame is the college here. Anyway. Um, and even to this day, there are traces. <laughs> so, um, wow. yeah. Okay. And then there's another dog um, uh, at Nyart, 
Uh, he says, I saw an old dog that laid down upon the pit wherein his master had been buried that had been slain by the English. Um, and Monsieur de Berry, I assume like the Duke de Berry, who also mm -hmm. write, had a famous manuscript <laughs> made for him by the Lindbergh brothers. Okay. Um, anyway, and so he and a great number of lords were led there to see the marble of this dog's loyalty and love. Um, and the dog wouldn't leave, right? this place where his master had been buried that the English had slain. Um, and so Monsieur de Berry, Monseigneur, sorry, de Berry, um, caused 10 francs to be given to him, the which were delivered to a neighbor uh, to find food for him all his life. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think maybe the dog actually got an allowance, sort of, like a continuous kind of like 10 francs to feed him for the rest of his life. Anyway. 10 francs is a lot of money in that those days, I think. Yes, I would... I mean, yep. <laughs> so he is rewarded, right? Um, but yeah, so this idea, though, of dogs being loyal after death, or past death, of the master is very old. I mean, the, you know, the Middle Ages didn't invent it either. But but yes, as we know, like, the story in Japan is a true story. The dog has a statue now, I think. Um, absolutely, yep. right? This There's plenty of stories about, you know, a child of, like, four or five out wandering with their dog and they, you know, get lost in the night and they're found the next morning or, you know, several days later, the dog hasn't abandoned them and kept them warm or in many cases, the dog like goes and finds rescuers. Yeah. And I can't actually remember, we may have talked about this for some reason, although I can't quite remember why or when, <laughs> but of course um, there's famously um, a, dog who's a saint right um and there are we did talk about that story yeah um yeah. and there are a few variations on this actually yeah um but this but you know so depending on which one we're looking at um saint guifor is the one of them um mm -hmm. and this is another aspect of that faithful hound you know story um and essentially what usually happens in these stories right is that um, the dog is left guarding a child, you know, an infant. Um, and the, whoever, you know, the knight in this case goes out to do whatever he has to do. He hunts and he does whatever. He comes back, he finds like everything in chaos and he see he can't find the kid, right? The cot is overturned and he sees the dog and there's like blood on the dog's jaws. And he thinks immediately the dog has killed his kid and he slays the dog um, and then he hears the child crying and goes and finds the kid somewhere, you know, in the corner safe, um, but next to the body of like a snake or some animal, dangerous animal, mm -hmm. and realizes that the dog killed the animal to protect the kid and that he has just killed the dog. Right. Um, and so this is how the yeah. dog becomes a saint. Yes. Um, and I, the, <laughs> this dog is not... Um, you know, this is like a 13th century French story. This particular dog, St. Grifor, um, is not officially a saint in the sense that the Catholic Church was somewhat annoyed by this and kind of tried to prohibit <laughs> the cult. Um, but the cult absolutely persisted. So, you know, because... The official the official rule is do all dogs don't go to heaven? Well, or don't, don't go straight to heaven. This is actually a question. Um, I want to say there's also a Welsh version of this dog, by the way. Um, I mean, of this story. Um, yeah, Gellert. Um, so anyway, so there, there's a variety of these stories. But um, obviously India has versions where usually it's a mongoose, you know, killing a snake or something. But um, but anyway, so the, the little dog. Um, yes, the question of do animals, but in this case pets, um, have souls, <laughs> right? Because is what you would need to be a a saint. Um, right. And yes, despite the Catholic Church, obviously people kept these cults going. Mm -hmm. The dog is known as a saint, you know, so um, yeah, sometimes what the church says doesn't really matter. But <laughs> <laughs> interestingly, the the sort of, I mean, you know, the powers that be who are going to be, you know, generally men who, I mean, that's who gets to set the rules mm -hmm. here, decided, basically. So you've got even like um, Aquinas sort of follows Aristotle, um, that essentially animals do have souls because they're alive. Um, you know, they clearly sort of have judgment and things like this, but they don't have rational souls. 
which is to hmm. say, right, the sort of higher level, um, okay. which is what humans have, which is the immortal soul. So they do have souls, but they do not have immortal souls that can necessarily be saved, right? That level of rationality, the rationality it takes to be saved, um, you know, theoretically, Adam and Eve got by eating that fruit that they weren't supposed to have, right? Yes. Knowledge of good and evil. Um, that makes you mortal, but your soul is immortal, right? And it mm-hmm. has this knowledge. It can discern good and evil. It That's, you know, you need these things to be saved, essentially. So the idea... This is actually yeah. sort of a reflection of what humans would be like under this worldview if they hadn't eaten the the fruit right. in the garden. There is a really interesting question, right? Because does that mean that humans would have been immortal, so it wouldn't have mattered, but that also mm-hmm. we wouldn't have had rational souls either. It wouldn't have mattered because we were immortal, so we weren't going to die and need our souls to go to heaven. But at the same mm-hmm. time, yeah, it's a, it's a, I mean, obviously that's a different debate for a different time, but all these debates existed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so anyway, um, you know, generally speaking, the idea is that people do have a soul, um, and that it, it always, presumably the point sort of for people is that our soul always had the potential to be the rational soul. It's just that we wouldn't have needed it <laughs> if we didn't eat that fruit. Yes. But we always had the potential and animals did not have that potential. Okay. Basically, yeah. Because, um, yeah, people have to have always had this, you know. Um, yep. But that is sort of the difference, right? That humans have this, yeah, this rational soul. Um and therefore, immortal soul that can go to heaven and the animals do not. So, yes, that is sort of the problem. But obviously, again, you know, the church can say what it wants. Um, there are obviously people who, you know, if you believe in a dog who's a saint, you know, genuinely would pray to this dog. Absolutely. Don't they have a ceremony where they do like a blessing of animals? Oh, yeah. St. Francis. On his- I know that in mm-hmm. in Siena, they, they bless all the racehorses for sure. Oh, yeah. Before the... Yes, that's separate. So that's but sp- specific. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I know that I think I've heard of ceremonies where they they people bring their pets. No, yeah. St. Francis, yeah. Every year on St. Francis's Day, um Catholic churches and now, you know, and frequently also Episcopal and yeah, um churches you bring your hmm. pets. Mhm. Yeah, it's St. Francis's Saint Day. Absolutely. Yep. Yes. Oh, Rickley wow. has a St. Francis medal. <laughs> Yes, she does. Mm-hmm. Yes. Because, yeah, I mean, I yeah. figure, why not? <laughs> yep. This is my, my feeling about that. Um, yes. So, yeah, absolutely, right? Um, and that's the other point. We've talked absolutely about mm-hmm. Francis before, but um, talking to the animals, right? Preaching to the animals. And the idea that the animals would listen to him um, when people would not. Right. Uh, and, of course, what is sort of tagged as the earliest vernacular poem in Italian, frequently, um, you know, brother, sun, sister, moon, all the animals, very much a sense of us being related deeply to creation. Um, and that's obviously the current pope when he took the name Francis. And so we've talked about sort of how surprising that yes. was to medievalists and also a lot of people who just are Catholic and know their history. Um who really has tried, I mean, he very much, uh, the environment and ecological issues are very, very important and upfront for him. Yeah. Um, and that is very, <laughs> very much a part of the name he took, right? Um, that is that is not a coincidence. That is one of the reasons why he took the name Francis. Because, yes, that's the point. We care for the world because we are part of it. <laughs> we are related to it. Um, and the funny thing, of course, is that while Francis did not ever, you know, sort of go over that line of do animals have souls or not, um, it obviously does lead to questions Mm -hmm. about that. Neither Francis has has gone near that line, I should say. But, um, yeah, it does, it does open up some, of course it opens up questions, right? Um, these are the questions. Because you, you know, people who have pets, people who want a cult that is based around a dog who saved a kid. Um, yeah, of course you want to believe that there is a soul. I mean, you know, so that's one of those times when church dogma can kind of say what it wants, but, you know, <laughs> other people, <laughs> meh, 
you know, people people can also think what they want, basically. Um, and there's some, you know, there are a lot of sort of fun things. I mean, religious figures wrote frequently about animals. <laughs> um, and absolutely, you know, had this sort of similar sensibility, right? Um, you don't, like, you sort of have to say that they don't have souls and therefore can't go to heaven. But also, oh, well, you know. Um, we should also point out that there are lots of pets, you know, there are plenty of other pets. You can have plenty of other pets. So, um, I did want to say there's a great moment because we're talking about sort of religion and animals. Um, there are these songs, um, to Santa Maria, um, Cantigas de Santa Maria written in Galatian, um, medieval sort of, yeah, Spanish Galatian, um, and during the reign of Alfonso the 10th of Castile, the wise, uh, 1221 to 1284, they're often attributed to him. Um, they're sort of written in his voice, and he may have actually written them. Okay. Um, but anyway, for, like 420 poems or so with musical notation. This is why they are okay. songs, of course. Um, and one of them is about his pet, who is a weasel or a ferret. Okay. Um, yes. So speaking, we sort of said, you know. Um, a mongoose before, like in India, the mm-hmm. right, the mongoose saves the kid. Um, the plot of, of uh, Ricky Tiki Tavi, this correctly, it's been a long time since I read Kipling. But... Absolutely, yes, yes, um, yeah, right, the mongoose, absolutely, the mongoose pet. Um, so here we have, yes, um, yeah, a ferret or a weasel, um, who had a song written about him, okay, right, one of these cantiga, cantigas. Um, and basically the story of it is that the king, so, so Alfonso, um, had a pet. We're going to call him a ferret, but maybe he's a weasel. Anyway, yeah. people still have ferrets as pets. Um, uh, whom he loved dearly. The beast was quick and clever. It hunted birds and did many tricks, which delighted the king. Um, he was so taken with the animal, he made a beautiful little cage in which to keep it to protect it from cats. Aha. Aha. Yes. Um, one day the king was riding down the road and took the ferret from the cage. As he was doing this, the nimble beast fell under the horse's hooves. Oh, no. Yes. The king cried out to the virgin, begging her to save his pet. Everyone there was upset because the king's horse had clearly stepped on the ferret. The king pleaded with them to find it and give it back to him. Then suddenly the merciful virgin caused the ferret to come out from under the horse's hoof. May she be blessed and praised, and may she and her son give us mercy and grace forevermore. Wow. Yes. Okay. So one of the songs is for her saving his pet. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which is wonderful and cute. Um, and also a reminder, of course, that this is how people always feel about their pets. Mm-hmm. Um, and also definitely that people have pets that aren't <laughs> necessarily cats or dogs and always have. Yes. Um, this is sort of a big one. Uh, monkeys are, of course, another pet that is less common today because you really shouldn't keep them, but, um, definitely people mm-hmm. did keep them in the Middle Ages. Um, you know, in Europe, of course, it's a huge status symbol, but there's some interesting sort of, um, places to, to see mm-hmm. them, I guess we would say. Um, so for example, there's a series of tapestries, okay. um, that are at the medieval museum in Paris, right? The, uh, Cluny, Musée de Cluny. Um, and they're presumably woven in Flanders, um, which was a big place for these things. Um, and um, it's the, the woman in, or the lady in the unicorn. Um, so la dame à la licorne. Um, and there's a series, yeah, of six of them. And they're kind of about, you know, courtly love and earthly pleasure, um, sort of according to the uh, senses. Mm-hmm. So there's taste and touch and smell and hearing and sight. Um, and then the last one is A Mon Sol Desir, um, which would sort of literally be like my only desire. But, you know, this is currently love. So it's more like according to my desire alone or something like that. Uh-huh. And they're pretty much all of a lady between a lion and a unicorn who are metaphorical in various ways, of course. Um, but then around them, other things happen, right, depending on which mm-hmm. one it is. But also, um, they're sort of surrounded by other little wild animals. So there might be a little deer. There are a lot of rabbits. Um, but then there are dogs. Some of them wearing collars. Very clearly, right? Sort of pet dogs who are around. Okay. And occasionally a monkey in a collar. 
<laughs> so clearly a pet monkey as well who's around. Um, and that final one, right, um, I'm on Soul Desire, uh, has um, a dog, a little dog on a cushion, a long-haired toy dog on a cushion, um, who would seem to be a, a Maltese, oh. which exists today, I think, still, basically, and definitely yeah. existed in the Middle Ages. They have nothing to do with Malta. It's not entirely clear why it was thought they did. You know, it was thought they were from the certain strain. F- anyway, that's how they get their name. But but anyway, um, yeah, so this very clear, and, you know, all the other dogs, they're they're clearly based sort of on real medieval dogs who are a little more Whippet-like in this case. Um, but this dog is so clearly, like, somebody's dog, <laughs> right? This is not just a generic, like, this dog is somebody's dog, right? Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's a little long-haired toy dog that you would see somebody today have, you know, in their purse or something. Yeah. Um, and it's just really great. <laughs> You know, because the other things are still a little more exotic, like the monkey with the collar. Yes, we know, like, you know, the upper classes had monkeys and mm-hmm. and all and the other types of dogs who are clearly more related to hunting dogs. Right. Those are those read very naturally in a sort of no, noble setting. Right. Mm-hmm. But this dog, it, I mean, you know, it's clearly noble. It's important. But it also is just far more sort of realistic in a modern sense. Yeah. Than, than most of the other things around it. It's a, it's a yeah. companion animal. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, looking very regal, you know, on this very beautiful cushion. But um, anyway, but yeah, so the idea, you know, there are plenty of other animals who exist as pets. Um, but, you know, the, the basics have kind of always been the basics, right? Um, I figure we're going to get to cats next time. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps. I think we do not have time for cats today, but we will yeah. finish up maybe a little more with dogs. Okay. Um, and so um, I did want to say, and not just with dogs either, but um, so, you know, we mentioned Chaucer. We should bring him back <laughs> for a moment. <laughs> um, it's worth pointing out that the Prioress um, has dogs. Um, the Prioress is a character who is... She's fantastic, but she is absolutely the epitome of sort of religious hypocrisy. Um, this is the point, you know, obviously, of her character. One of the points. Um, she's kind of a terrible human being in a number of ways. One of them being she really does not care about other people. And this is emphasized um, because of how much she cares about animals. So Chaucer is oh. here kind of making a commentary on people who care about animals more than people. And interestingly, this is actually still an issue um, so we'll see if we can find one of these articles. But people have done studies that um, if you put up posters that are saying, you know, please donate, you know, posters, whatever. It doesn't have to be posters, but TV ads, um, you know, whatever. If you do mm-hmm. ads for charity, the ones that ask for charity for animals and have the picture of the really, like, sad puppy on the front mm-hmm. versus the ones that ask for charity for people and have the picture of, like, the starving child, the pet ones make more money. Wow. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, this is, Hmm. it's not that pets shouldn't, yes, you should give money, but there is clearly a kind of problem here, right? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Like, yes, we want tons of money to go to pets, but also we do not want children to be starving. Like that really, yeah, people should should not be starving. We we should be caring about that. Um, So, (laughs) um, this is absolutely that moment for Chaucer, right? He is pointing out her hypocrisy partly along these lines, right? She cares so much about animals. Um, We're told that she would weep if she saw a mouse caught in a trap, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And that is, of course, supposed to to be ridiculous. Um, Not that he doesn't understand that mice are cute and furry, but, I mean, come on, you know? Cats hunt them for a reason. They eat your stuff. They nibble on your hair. Like, they're, you know, Yeah. (laughs) You don't want mice around everywhere. Okay. So, um, she has small hounds, uh, that she feeds with roasted meat, um, or milk and fine white bread. Um, and this is another commentary, right? Remember I said the church really discouraged people keeping pets if they were going to be feeding them with stuff they should have been giving to the poor. Mm Mm-hmm. 
well, this is that example, right? Um, and not only should she be giving all this to the poor, but this is also a level of food that she could get much cheaper food, a lot more cheaper food for the amount she's spending on this and yeah. give all of that to the poor, right? So she could feed a lot more of the poor with food that maybe isn't quite so rich <laughs> instead of giving this really rich food to her dogs, which probably isn't good for them anyway, just like it probably isn't good for people, right? Um, okay. Uh, and then we're told, you know, but she w sorely wept if one of them were dead or if someone smote it smartly with a stick. Um, okay. Yes, which... I think is to give us the impression perhaps they're, you know, we all know someone. <laughs> it is a gender stereotype to say a woman, but doesn't have to be, um, mm -hmm. who has a bunch of small yappy dogs who are just really terrible. And like when you bring your dog out to the dog park or something and that person's there, you're like, nope, <laughs> can't yeah. go in there today. Right. Um, yeah, I think that this is supposed to be the impression. We used to live next door to someone who had a dog... That hated men. Oh, wow. I mean, the dog hated <laughs> right. men. Not the, <laughs> yes. Our neighbor was fine. Um, yes. Yes. Yes, I, and, I agree with that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Poor Norman Aww. was very angry Aww. about men. This is a pity. And uh, I mean, in some cases, then you wonder if there was abuse or something at some point. Yeah, I don't know. I don't think he was actually very old, so... Oh, so... I don't, I don't know if he had had any prior owners. Wow, so who knows, then just but it was, badly socialized. It was definitely, yeah, it was like, you know, this condo where nobody had a dog that weighed more than 10 pounds. Right. And then, um... Yes. Not train them very well, because when you have a 10-pound dog, it doesn't matter. Right, except it still does, just because, you know, people still care. Like, yeah. you know, the other day we took out, you know, we took out Wrigley... Um, and we're going along and she starts to poop and it, every dog owner knows this. If you see another dog pooping, you stop or you go way around, like you do not interrupt mm -hmm. that dog pooping, right? <laughs> I just feel like that's cardinal yeah. law for her, right? Yeah. Um, and so there's this guy coming along and he's got two dogs and one's bigger, you know, sort of wrinkly size and one's a little yappy dog. And, you know, I'm trying to stand sort of in between so they'll have to go around me. Um, and he's not going to and he just is going to go straight by he's kind of ignoring us um and so you know he did and the bigger dog just went straight by but then the little yappy dog starts to go after our dog um which made me so angry first because again she's like in the middle of pooping so you don't interrupt a dog pooping because yeah. then they like might not finish and then you have to take them out again and whatever but also like what the heck right he he knows his dog is like this. He can't be bothered to just go around the tree so that on the other side, right? So that his dog doesn't attack our dog. Yeah. You know, and he kind of pulled the dog away, but not really until, you know, we looked like we were, because we were about to yell. I mean, I was coming sort of, and so then he kind of pulled the dog away. Um, but, you know, that. So, yeah, the Priors' dogs, I think, are that is clearly what the type of dog they are. They're spoiled, they behave terribly, they're little toy dogs. And so, yeah, sometimes people hit them, which is bad. You shouldn't do that, obviously. But, you know, it is... <laughs> yes. And so then she, you know, weeps. But it's clearly her fault. I mean, she has raised terrible dogs. Yeah. Right. And she's a terrible person, you know. And so um, this sort of... But anyway, but it's very much a sort of commentary on her class, on her status, you know, all of these things, her hypocrisy. Um, it's... Um, a little bit different from, you know, I think we've talked before about Chanticleer, who, of course, is one of the more famous animals in Chaucer's stories. Mm -hmm. um, this is the nun's priest's tale in Canterbury Tales. It's a, the tale of Chanticleer. Um, it comes from a fable by Marie de France. So we, we talked about all this before, I think. Um, but Marie de France's fable is just about is just about the cock, right? Just about Chanticleer. Mm -hmm. um, there, it's not about... There's no one else in it, right? So it's just the cock and the fox um, and the sort of anthropomorphized, you know, as fables are. You've got sort of anthropomorphic animals who do things that are supposed to teach people a lesson, right? Which in this case is obviously like, don't listen to flattery, right? Um, right. And, but Chaucer's tale has this whole extra cast of characters. Um, and so basically, Chanticleer is a pet. He's this prize rooster, right? Um, who is... Mm -hmm. Owned by a widow 
Um, and the widow has him, right? Um, and then, of course, his, like, main wife, Dame Pertolit, the hen. Uh, but also there's a bunch of other hens. Um, and a sheep called Mal. Um, mm-hmm. And then several dogs, Kali, uh, Talbot, and Gerland. <laughs> um, there are okay. also three sows and three cows, but they don't get names. So presumably, so they are not pets. They're sort of, right? Mm. But the sheep... You know, we su- the sheep yeah, does. the sheep does, the dogs do, and then Ch- Chanticleer and his main hen, right? Now, mm-hmm. clearly, the hens are sort of working animals. I mean, Chanticleer is there because of the hens, and the hens are laying eggs, right? Um, the sheep, of course, presumably gives wool and possibly milk. The dogs, of course, help guard the animals and all of that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not that they aren't working dogs, but yeah, clearly a lot of them are pets. This is a little family farm. There are most of them pets. The widow, we're told, is a dairy woman, essentially. So she makes her money, presumably mostly off the, the cow's milk, maybe sell some eggs, you know, stuff like that. Um, so <laughs> um, in that one, right, we have this whole sort of cast. Um, and when Chanticleer gets in trouble, they all come running, Right? Like all the dogs and the widow and her daughters, mm. they all come after the fox. Um, but it, it's still Chanticleer who tricks the fox into letting him go. Um, but then he's, you know, and has sort of learned his lesson. But yeah, we have this whole extra cast of characters. So it's, it's very sort of clear that he's a pet. Um, and, and, you know, a prize, a prize pet. You know, we would think of the way today someone might raise prize poultry and take them to 4-H or something. Right. Um, and usually, okay, you know, yeah. there certainly are plenty of animals who are taken to county fairs who are not pets and will turn into pork chops or something. Um, but yes. but also some of them are pets. Right. Particularly like the, the poultry mm-hmm. and stuff where you will keep them around. Um, one of my good friends, college roommate, now a doctor, um, she had a prize poultry who I met um, and he absolutely lived out his life happily. You know, Wow. Okay. <laughs> yes, Demetrius. Um, oh. yeah. Uh, he was a white duck. Yeah. Um, and... I was gonna guess maybe probably some of the rabbits. Oh, yeah. People rabbits keep. definitely can be... Obviously. They had, they used to have a lot of very fancy rabbits at our local 4-H fair. Mm-hmm. And those are usually pets, absolutely. I yeah. mean, oh my gosh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which is another interesting thing about the tapestries we just talked about, that um, all of the rabbits and sort of the deer, those don't seem to be pets. We assume they're, but they could be, right? So there's something sort of interesting about that. But the dogs and the monkey clearly are, (laughs) Um, you know, they have collars and so on. Um, Mm -hmm. But there's also just a sort of pastoral sense about it, right? So, um, you know, the other animals are kind of part of the setting, maybe. Um, but yeah, they absolutely can all be pets. Um, and it is absolutely a reminder that that they have been, you know, just the same way. Again, mm-hmm. ferrets are still pets and apparently were pets, you know, back in medieval Long Spain. Ago. Right. Yeah. Um, so th- I think there is something interesting. We we both do and don't recognize this about humanity as a whole. Like we we know mm-hmm. that dogs and cats and other animals have been pets forever because they show up in paintings they show up in graves right but at the same time we somehow think that people didn't maybe care as much or they only cared because they were good hunting dogs or something like that Mm -hmm. um and that is absolutely not the case you know um Mm -hmm. you look at odysseus's dog speaking of loyal dogs yes he waits for him for 20 years that is amazing you know and he's the first one to recognize him back yeah absolutely yes so um yeah, dogs are <laughs> dogs are where it's at. Yeah, um, but I apologize to Andre for we will get to cats next time. Yeah, um, he got he got bored. Yes, He's like you're shoving me to next week. I'm gonna go. I know. Wander around, but I just feel like there's too much to say, and it, it probably you know we'll continue on with some other animals mm-hmm. and cats, but there's just too much. I, I figured we'd probably have to split up dogs and cats because okay. dogs and cats living together. Sorry. <laughs> what, what madness. Yes. Yes. So figured we'd probably have to split that up. But um, I haven't even covered all of the dogs, actually, um, because I should also have mentioned that Hildegard, whom we have, of course, talked about, um, 1098 to 1170. Uh, yes. Hildegard von Bingham. Yes. 
yeah, so yeah, um, yeah, Hildegard von Bingen, uh, 1098 to 1179. Um, she has a book, she wrote two sort of books on medicine, um, that have been combined into like the Physica as they got published. Um, it was like the sort of simple medicines and like, um, complex medicines or which compounded medicines, I guess would be that one. Um, but anyway, they got combined into this work. And she's got a chapter on animals, book seven, um, of the simple medicine. And, um, one of the animals, of course, is the dog. And she says, um, that the dog, uh, has a natural affinity with human ways. It senses and understands the human being, loves him, willingly dwells with him, and is faithful. The devil hates and abhors the dog because of its loyalty to humans. Okay. Which is awesome. Um, yeah. And then she goes on. Oh, Andre came back for this because he's like, what? Yeah. Uh, well, listen to this. She also says that a dog recognizing hatred, wrath, and perfidy in a person often howls at him. If it knows there is hatred and wrath in a house, it quietly growls and gnashes its teeth. If a person has treachery in him, the dog gnashes its teeth at him, even though the person loves that dog, since it recognizes, understands this in a person. Right? So a dog can recognize your own treachery and dislike you mm. for it, even if it knows that, you know, it loves you. Okay. Um, it will go after him, testing his odor with its nose and stalking him. In this way, the thief can be recognized um, if there is a thief in the house. Wow. So there you go. That, of course, is still true. We, of course, use dogs to find prisoners. Um, yeah, they, they can do it. <laughs> um, all right. The dog sometimes has a foreboding of happy or sad events to come in the future or already present. In accordance with its understanding, it sends out its voice revealing this. When the future events are happy, it is happy and wags its tail. When they are sad, he is sad and howls. The heat in its tongue confers healing to wounds and ulcers if it touches them. Yes, so you should let your dog lick you. Okay. Yeah. Um, but yes, but also, of course, um, the funny thing is that more of this is true than she could probably possibly have known. Um, but for example, like the idea that dogs, some dogs can smell certain forms of cancer and stuff mm -hmm. like that, or certain sicknesses or dogs that recognize if you're going to have an epileptic seizure, because yeah. presumably because of the, your change in, in your smell. Yeah, yeah, I have definitely heard stories of dogs follow them around uh, weird, like weirdly, unusually on labor. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. So there, there's a really interesting way in which, um, yeah, uh, the sensibility of, of dogs, their loyalty and their abilities. Yeah. Um, you know, we still, we still have it, but also they had it in the past. Yep. Yay. Yeah. All right. That is our, that is our episode on medieval pets, but also yes. mostly dogs. Mostly dogs. <laughs> but we'll return to cats next time. Yes. yes. And probably some other random pets as well. But. Okay. Th those who are truly in charge, perhaps. No, um... Yes. That is what, I mean, <laughs> Andre Andre definitely believes that he's the one in charge of the dogs, so... Yeah. Seems fair. The funny part is our big 60-pound our big dog, Edgar, also believes that Andre is in charge of him. I was just going to say, that, that that seemed reasonable, yes. <laughs> yes. Okay. Aww. End of episode announcements. Nothing big. Have <laughs> I hope by the time this comes out, it's going to be there might be a vaccine. Yeah, it might be. Uh, I mean, people will be getting the vaccine. I was going to say we'll have a new president too. Yeah, that too. Uh, what? But yeah, um, whole different world basically. Yes, the last time we did a recording, which of course will come out again, we'll have a new president, yeah. but we didn't know yet. It was sure. election yeah. night. We recorded. <laughs> it was election episode. night. Yeah. Woo. Um, yeah. That was a night. <laughs> yeah, it was. Oh, boy. So, um, I hope that everybody in the future is enjoying their brave new world. Yes. And uh, <laughs> not... Um, now we all know what it was like when Queen Elizabeth died and hadn't actually named a successor. Yes, kind of. I mean, you know, it's fine, but there was probably that fear. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 The uh, that's the problem with succession and um, yep. the the uh, uncertainty of it all. Yes, which theoretically our system is supposed to not have. But <laughs> right there we are. Um, most of the time, it, we don't. Yeah, I mean theoretically we don't have it. Yeah. It's just so that it's just so we're all pulling our hair out right now. As long as the system lasts, yes. we're all good. Yes. I think it's the point. Okay. Yep. Yes. So brave new world. If you're interested in uh, looking at the notes more closely or if you want to leave us a message 
You can use the uh, contact form on our website, which is at www.askmedievalist.com. And uh, we actually will email you back between semesters, at least, and um, may use your questions in a future episode. And uh, if you enjoy our podcast, you can rate us on iTunes, um, tell a friend, and you can follow us on Facebook, where we sometimes post relevant articles about things going on in the arts or just um, interesting articles that relate to the Middle Ages and also announce our episode. So, you know, hopefully I don't have to say keep wearing your mask and washing your hands for too much longer, but keep doing it and keep it medieval. Bye. Ask a Medievalist is a production of This Can't Be That Hard Studios and is not endorsed, acknowledged, or condoned by Virginia Commonwealth University or any of its constituent departments. Our theme music is Veni Veni Venias from Carmina Burana by Carl Orff, performed by the MIT Concert Choir and licensed under a Creative Commons Attributional Non-Commercial License version 3.0. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, why not tell a friend? For more on today's topic, including sources, annotations, and corrections, visit our website at www.askamedievalist.com. And if you have questions, feel free to drop us an email at questions at askamedievalist.com. Thank you.